0: So recently, I I read a story in The Atlantic about a South Korean woman whose name was Ji Young No. And she she shares about how she was inspired by a conversation with her husband to start this highly unusual retreat center. And her husband at the time was an attorney working 100-hour weeks. And one day, in exasperation, he quipped, I would rather be kept in solitary confinement than have to go back to work again. And the comment stuck, and an idea began to percolate in her mind. And then in 2013, she launched a mock prison where people for $90 a day, exhausted professionals, stay-at-home parents, teachers, uh, could hand over their devices, sleep on mats, eat rigor, meager daily rations, and spend 24 to 48 hours locked away in silence, in, in um, solitary confinement. And thousands since opening have come and have found relief. And as I, as I read that story, I thought to myself, this sounds crazy. You know, go and pay to get locked up in prison for 24 to 48 hours. And then my second thought was, I want to go there, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but the article went on, and the name of the facility was called The Prison Within Me. One participant was asked to reflect on her experience, and she said this, She said, the prison, or she said, this is not a prison. The prison is where we return. And, you know, in some ways, she's right. You know, I think the modern world can feel oftentimes like a prison cell of frenetic busyness, you know, with the constant demands of, life and of responsibilities. And of course, all of those shoulds, you know, you should visit your mother more often. You should have read that book over break for school. Uh, you, you, you should have sent out your Christmas card and you didn't. You should do a lot more and you're not. And you start to feel uh, anxious inside about all of the shoulds. And And of course, it's not just the responsibilities. It's all of the constant distractions. You know, the digital age with with, you know, TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and Netflix and thousands of apps and devices that are vying for our attention, it is constantly rewiring our brains for, uh, for, for distraction, and it is sabotaging our ability for deep thoughts and deep work. And our new normal is what tech writer Linda Stone calls, quote, continual partial attention. I mean, it seems we are never fully present anywhere at the dinner table, in the bathroom, in line at the grocery store, driving your car. You're always like on the phone doing something, always distracting yourself. And, and, and so we live in this frenetic, busy, fast-paced culture. Commenting on our current situation, pastor and author Rich Viotis put it like this. He said, the speed we live at does violence to our souls, he says, the speed at which we live is doing violence to our souls. Now, he wrote that in, in a book he has called The Deeply Formed Life. And in an interview where he was talking about that book, uh, the interviewer asked specifically about that line. And listen to how he, how, he, how he further explains it. He says this. He says, the reason speed does violence against our souls is because our souls were meant to be tended to. There's a preciousness, a tenderness to our souls that require a slow observation. And so when we're living at this chaotic pace, we don't give our souls the opportunity to rest, to breathe, to receive the nutrients from God that we desperately need. Well, last week, we began a new series entitled Abide, practicing the presence of God. And in some ways, our goal throughout this series is to to create new space in our lives where we can breathe, where we can sit in the presence of God, where we can begin to receive those nutrients our souls so desperately need from God. You know, last week we said that Jesus invites us into this life. I mean, think about this. Jesus invites you into a life where the frenetic pace is broken, where the, the, the ongoing constant distractions, you withdraw from that. And you can actually cultivate a life of abiding, of making your home at the, in the presence of God, where you can make your home in the very love of God and find new life and vitality and energy to enter into the rest of life. But the, the question, of course, is how does that happen? I mean, how do we do that? How do you cultivate a life th- uh, where you're practicing the presence of God, where you're receiving from God like a, a branch that's attached to the vine, where you're receiving those nutrients that really bring life and vitality into your life? How do you do that? Well. There's a lot of ways you can answer that question. There are many ways in the weeks ahead in which we're going to reflect on answers to that question. But today, I, I just want us to, to, to focus on this one idea. Today, I want us to see that we must cultivate, if we're going to enjoy a life where we are being enriched by the nutrients of God's life, we must cultivate a regular rhythm of getting away to be alone with God and with ourselves in what Jesus calls the secret place. Have a look at Matthew chapter 6. So Matthew 6, of course, is Jesus's magisterial sermon on the mount, and it is his kingdom manifesto, what it looks like to embody the life of the kingdom in this present age. And and in in this story, it's interesting because in Jesus's sermon on the mount, at the very center is a teaching on prayer. At the very heart of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses our life with God. And listen to what he says. He begins with the negative. He says this, when you pray, here's what you should not be like. He says, when you pray, don't do this. Do not be like the hypocrites For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. He says, the hypocrites want to go out and do prayer as performance. He says, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. You know, it was C.S. Lewis who said that it's easy to move from enjoying and admiring a sunset to admiring yourself for admiring the sunset. Or admiring a sophisticated film or piece of literature or theologian or thinker to admiring yourself for having such sophistication to enjoy and admire such a sophisticated piece of literature or film or whatever. And um, and then you can move from that to uh, wanting to put on display to others that you are so admirable. You know, have you ever found yourself, you know, you're like, you admire something, you're like, craft coffee you know, organically grown, you know, ethically raised um, meats and vegetables or whatever, locally sourced, and you admire that, and then you admire yourself for admiring that. And then you begin begin to think, am I better than everyone else? Am am I alone in this? Come on, there's got to be more, yes. But Jesus says the temptation is to put yourself on display so that you could get, garner others' attention so that, you know, they can see your Instagram post or hear that subtle, you know, comment that you put into your conversation with somebody at the dinner party to impress them so that they will admire you. And Jesus says this happens in church all the time. You know, we subtly drop these little references. Well, I was reading in the Bible this week. In my prayer time this week, I was thinking about Or in my devotions, I was thinking about And they're kind of putting themselves on display so that that you'll think, oh, they're such spiritual people. Or, you know, they're always going around and asking questions. So what were you learning in your devotions this week? And you're like, "I, I, I, I I didn't have a devotion this week. I'm sorry. Like, you must have. And you're kind of impressive and like, Jesus says, don't don't be like them. Instead, Jesus says this, when you pray, when you engage with God, he says, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So the commentators point out that when Jesus speaks about this door, you know, this room that you go into within your house and you close the door, he said, they, they say Jesus is almost certainly referring to uh, the one location in a first century peasant home where you could go and find a locked enclosed space, which was basically kind of your, your cupboard. It was the one place where you could lock something in. It was a closet. And uh, you would put your feed there and, and tools there and anything of value. And Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. When you pray, go into a place, a closet, where you can basically lock the door and shut everyone out. You know, incidentally, uh, Natalie Wiley was sharing with me this week that in Mops, they were playing this game where uh, they were seated in a big circle. It's like an icebreaker. And they were going around, and uh, if, if you, they were asking a, a, a random assortment of questions, and if you answered yes to the question, you would move over to the seat next to you. Now, if somebody was already sitting there, you would have to go and like sit on their lap. So it's kind of like, that sounds really awkward. I hope I never play this game. But, um, but she, she said that um, th- there was one question that every mom in the room answered yes to. And it was the question, have you ever locked yourself in the closet to get away from your children? Every mom in the room. And Jesus is saying, here's what you should do. Go and lock yourself in a closet to get away with God. Now, Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. He doesn't literally mean go and lock yourself in the closet to pray. For, for you, it may be your best place to get alone with God is in a locked closet uh, while your children are outside doing who knows what, you know. But it also may be a long hike in the mountains or a walk on the beach, or your favorite chair with a cup of coffee. But Jesus is essentially referring to that place, that space where you can sit and be alone with God in silence. And there in silence with yourself and with God, in contemplation and reflection, listening and talking, you might encounter and engage with God. And Jesus is saying, this is, this is at the heart of the spiritual life. This is at the heart of the life of the kingdom of heaven. It is a life where you regularly, where you habitually take time to sit and to be with God. Now, let's just stand back and let's now make three observations about the secret place, this place, you know, the closet that Jesus is calling us to cultivate a space for engaging with him in silence and solitude, daily, in listening, in conversation, in contemplation and reflection. Uh, three observations. Number one, Jesus in our text is giving us a concrete discipline that he himself practiced. Jesus, you could say, is giving us a rhythm that he himself brought into the course of his own life. You know, it's fascinating. When you read through the Gospels, what do you find there? Well, of course, you see the the stunning and breathtaking works of Jesus. He cleanses lepers. He gives sight to the blind. He gives hearing to the deaf. We we witness his bodily resurrection. And and there we, we, we also receive the wise, the breathtaking words of Jesus, his teaching. But it's interesting, in the Gospels, we also get a window into the lifestyle of Jesus, how he organized, how he ordered his life. And one of the features of Jesus' lifestyle that stands out the most, and it is almost the clearest thing, if you ask, were there any regular disciplines, any regular habits that Jesus embraced, you see this, Jesus regularly, Jesus habitually withdrew to be with his Father. You know, in the very opening scene of Jesus' public ministry, he's baptized, you know, John the Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's baptized, the Spirit descends. He comes out from the waters of baptism. Where is the first place he goes? It's not into public. He goes into private, into a desolate place. Wilderness place. And look at what it says. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness. Uh, the word in Greek is Eremas, and it can be translated a solitary place. Jesus went out to get alone with his Father. And there he was tempted for 40 days by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him a little bit later in Mark's gospel. In fact, the, the, the rest of chapter one, it's, it's a lengthy chapter and it recounts, it's pretty fascinating, it recounts a day in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And he begins the day in the synagogue and he's teaching and he exercises some demon that confronts him in church because the demonized are always at church. Um, that was a joke. I mean, maybe sometimes they are. But um, he... he He casts out a demon in the synagogue, and then he goes out, and he heals Peter's mother-in-law, and then he teaches the crowds, and then multitudes come. And for the rest of the afternoon, all the way late into the evening, Jesus is healing people, and praying for people, and teaching people, and cleansing lepers, and casting out demons and such. And then we read this. After this long, exhausting day, Jesus crashes. But then, rising very early in the morning, While it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. It's the same word in Greek, Eremos. He went out into the solitary place, and there he prayed. Luke tells us that this was not a one-moment kind of thing with Jesus. This was his regular rhythm. Listen to how it puts it. But Jesus' often withdrew to lonely places again aremos to a solitary place and there he prayed and what you see in the life of jesus is something of a rhythm that looks like this on the one hand you see jesus often out and engaged with people and teaching, again, and people are touching him and, and he's teaching them and they're in his space and, and he's feeding them and they're demanding stuff from him and it's stuff with, with people. But then he withdraws and he spends time alone with himself and with his father in quiet and in contemplation. And this is his rhythm. And if this is Jesus' rhythm, don't you think it would be wise for you and I to incorporate this rhythm into our own life? Now, listen, can I just say something? Uh, oftentimes, within the evangelical world, if you've been in church for a while, uh, we have something that we call a quiet time. Does anybody here, does that language sound familiar to you? A quiet time. Versus this daily time that you take with God. And I, I think a lot of times in church, we view that through a legalistic lens. It's another box to check off. And if we do it, we feel like we're a good Christian. And then if somebody asks us, so what have you been learning in your quiet time lately? You have something to say, oh, well, this morning I was reading, or this week I was reading. And then you perform, right? But I I don't want you to see this as a discipline or a duty primarily. I want you to see this as a path into a life that looks more like Jesus. This is a rhythm. I mean, you you think about our frenetic, overly busy ultra distracted culture where people have to pay $90 a day to go lock themselves in solitary confinement. And long before any of this, Jesus is modeled for us. Look, there's a better way to live, Americans. You can create space where you shut off your phone. I read this week about a new a new product that's being put on the market. It's a, it's a lockbox for your phone where you put your phone in there and you lock it away. And it will not open again until the time that you have programmed in. And there is no way of breaking the code. <laughs> Some of you might need a lockbox. Can I get a witness? Anybody in the house, you know? And we are anxious, and we are depressed, and we are not living well. We are not emotionally healthy. We are not spiritually healthy. And Jesus says, there is a better way. Look at this rhythm. I've engaged with people and then I withdraw and I create space to be alone with my father. Now, don't misunderstand what we're talking about here. I'm not saying that Jesus went out and went with people and then he went back and then that's where he was with God. I mean, uh, one way you can think about this is God is present everywhere all the time wherever you are at, And we talked about this last week. Part of the goal of the Christian life is to learn how to practice the presence of God, to always be two places at once, to be driving your car and then in the presence of God, to be uh, sending that email and in the presence of God, to be studying for that test and in the presence of God, to be playing video games with your friends and in the presence of God. You know, But learning to be two places at once. And God is perfect in what theologians call His imminence. And this is the reality that God is ever-present, that God is nearer to you right now than the air that is touching your skin. Or as Paul put it, in Him we live and move and have our very being. And so, our, our, our goal is really to learn how to do everything in life in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving honor and praise to him at work, in school, in leisure, whatever we're doing, to, to learn that practice that the Apostle Paul talked of, of praying without ceasing. And so the whole of life is lived in the presence of God. And yet, what we're talking about here is this. God is always near to you, but we need to consciously and habitually, and in a disciplined fashion, take time every day to draw near to him. Or in the words of Henry Nouwen, we have indeed to fashion our own desert. You know, Jesus withdrew to the desert, to those wilderness places. And Henry Nouwen, that great spiritual writer, says you also need to fashion your own desert. Maybe it's a a regular hike, a walk, a chair, a closet where we can withdraw every day and shake off our compulsions and dwell in the gentle, healing presence of the Lord. And so Jesus, number one in our text, is giving us a daily rhythm, a practice that he himself practiced. And he is saying, look, here's the way into genuine life. But second, I want you to see in our text that Jesus is not only giving us a practice that he himself practiced. Secondly, Jesus in our text, is, uh, he is giving us an antidote to religious hypocrisy. And again, this is one of Jesus's main points in this passage. Look at what he says again. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. <laughs> you know? For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. The question: What is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is when your outside differs from your inside. It, it's when how you present to others, the face you give to others is different than the face you give at home or in private. You know, hypocrisy is, is that disconnect between who you are when people are watching and who you are when you are alone. And of course, churches, and you know this, churches and religious communities can be breeding grounds for hypocrisy. Because it's almost like you feel like when you go to be with people who you perceive at times to be better than you, more advanced than you, you, you get there and you're like, oh, I feel I gotta perform, I've gotta present, I've gotta look a certain way. Jesus is hypocrisy, you know? These people draw near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And I don't primarily want your lips disconnected from your heart. I want your heart, the whole of your your inner being. But churches, again, it can be breeding ground for hypocrisy. You know, I was, um, uh, years ago, when my kids were just little, and uh, we were living back in Seal Beach, I don't know, this is, 15 years ago or something like that. But my, uh, my, 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 my kids who were homeschooling uh, were, they, we, they started to collect caterpillars, and they would put them in this little uh, aquarium-like thing and uh, they would cocoon, you know, and crystallize. And then, you know, and we had uh, monarch butterflies in our back. You had all this milkweed growing out. And, you know, the monarch butterflies were on there. So they'd bring them in. And they'd watch them cocoon. And then the beautiful butterfly would come out. And uh, one day, they, they got a different kind of caterpillar. I think it was a cottonwood caterpillar. And they brought it in. And um, we, were, we, we watched it cocoon. And so at dinner at night, you know, we'd be sitting there and it was at the dinner table. I mean, it wasn't on the dinner table, but because nothing makes you hungrier than watching caterpillars eat milkweed, you know? And uh, so we watched this thing cocoon and we were sitting there and, and I don't know if it was days or weeks or whatever, but... One night, we were eating dinner, and the thing started to break open from the cocoon. And we're all like, oh, what's going to come out? What's going to be out? And out of the cocoon came not a butterfly, but three black, scary, hairy flies. (laughs) And we read about it. They were tacnid flies, and tacnid flies are parasites on cocoons and they insert their little uh, maggot or whatever inside the cocoon, and it begins to grow, and it begins to feed on what's in there. And it, it eats what's inside, and then it ultimately uses the cocoon, as it's, and then it breaks out, and you see what's in there. And Jesus says this is oftentimes religious people. They have a cocoon of religious practice. They go to church. They do churchy things. They got church uh, talk coming out of their mouth. but. You look below the surface and there's something eating them inside. There is some darkness there. In Jesus' words, you know, on the outside you look so clean and beautiful, but inside you are full of dead men's bones and all manner of uncleanness. There's a danger of us developing a false self in church if we're not careful. And it is in solitude not simply when you rush and you check off a box and read your Bible so that you can go out and tell people what you did or whatever, but when you sit in quiet and silence with yourself and God and self-examination that you begin to deal with stuff. Listen, the spiritual life is like film. It develops in the dark. You are who you are when no one else is watching. That is who we are. And it's in, it's, in, it's in quiet and in solitude in the presence of God that we learn who we are. Again, Henry Nouwen put it like this. He said, in solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding. No friends to talk with, no calls to make, no emails to answer, no texts to respond to, no meetings to attend, no movies or music to entertain, no TikTok or YouTube or Instagram to distract. By the way, I added that in. Henry Nowen wasn't on Instagram. (laughs) Just me, naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. It is in this nothingness that I have to face in my solitude. And it's not just that nothingness. In solitude, you also discover the genuine you. Howard Thurman brilliantly put it like this. He said, you are the only you that has ever lived. And if you cannot hear the sound of the genuine in you, you will all of your life spend your days on the ends of strings that someone else pulls. And it's in silence and solitude where you listen to that voice, where you contemplate that good voice. You are my beloved son or daughter. This is the genuine you. Or in the words of Moana to that crazy mountain, Maui, was it? Or no, I don't know what it is. Do you know who you are? You are a child, you are a son or daughter of God. This is the genuine you. You are not primarily what you do. You are not how you perform. You are not your resume. You are not your education. You are something better than all of that. You are secure and safe in the eternal and infinite love of your Father in heaven. And it's in silence and solitude we return to this place and we rest and we reflect on the love of God and who we are and we hear the voice of the genuine in us. And so, what is Jesus doing in this text? Well, number one, he is inviting you and me into a concrete rhythm, a daily practice of engagement and then withdrawal. And Jesus, in our text, is giving you and I an antidote to hypocrisy and the false self. And thirdly and finally, Jesus is giving us, in our text, a promise of reward. Now, look back at verse six. This is pretty fascinating. I think this is interesting. Jesus says, and when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, what kind of reward is he talking about here anyway? This is kind of an interesting, actually throughout this text, Jesus talks about rewards. And what is a reward? You know, anyway, right? There are two types of rewards, aren't there? there is a reward that serves actually as a, it it, it is disconnected from the thing itself that you are doing. And so, for example, when I was in the third grade, uh, our teacher promised us the reward of ice cream if we would learn our multiplication tables. Now, there was no connection between learning math and ice cream. I mean, maybe I guess there probably is some kind of like technical connection, but not for us. All I wanted was ice cream, so I learned math. And of course, uh, teachers or parents use, you know, you, you want to teach your kid how to potty train. And so you say, look, if you just, you don't go in your pants, you go on the toilet, we'll give you a star. And if you get six stars, we'll take you to the story store and get you a toy, you know, and you give them a reward, you know. And there are rewards that are disconnected from the thing itself that you're learning or you're trying to do. But then there's a second kind of reward. And the second kind of reward is the reward that comes at the long end of doing the thing itself. In other words, it is the natural outcome that you are rewarded with if you actually dig in and you do this thing again and again and again. And actually, potty training fits in that category, doesn't it? I mean, the real reward for potty training is not that I got a little toy or a piece of candy when I was a child. It's that I can go about my day without having to embarrass myself, right? I mean, I have reaped that reward for the rest of my life after I learned that skill. What kind of reward is Jesus promising us here? And I think what Jesus is promising us is a reward that is the natural outcome of the thing itself. And what is the natural outcome of honestly and authentically withdrawing and quieting your mind And turning off your devices and taking time to be alone with yourself and with God? What is the natural outcome of a life of doing that? What is it but a a life where, actually, at the long end of your life, you begin more and more to begin to taste? and experience the joy of being in the presence of the one who when we sit there in the secret place, he sees us and he sees us with a smile and delight and he rejoices over us and we get to enjoy that over the long course of our life. In fact, I mean, you could put it like this, like, you know, St. Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, God. And in you and you alone, our restless hearts finally find their true rest. It is when you rest in God that you begin to live into what you were made for. You were made for a relationship with God. And so when you take time to be with God, when you enjoy God in His presence, you begin to live more and more into the very reason of your existence. You begin to have what it, it really takes to throughout the rest of your day to live all of your day in the presence of God who is always near to you, but who too often we just ignore. So God is our reward, it's his presence. You know, it's interesting, I was reading a commentary this week and he said something that just struck me and I never thought about this before, but he said in the first century Jewish context that Jesus was writing in, where was the place, if you were a Jew, where you would go to meet? Where was the secret place where the palpable presence of God resided? In the Jewish imagination, it was in the temple, and it wasn't just the temple, it wasn't just the outer courts of the temple, and it wasn't just the inner courts of the temple, it was the very inner court of the, it was the very inner, the heart was called the Holy of Holies and only the high priest could go there, and only once a year he could go in, and only after the right ritual cleansing had been done, and after the right sacrifices had been made, only then could he go into the presence of God, and only then once a year. And it's as if Jesus, in this moment, and with this word, changes the entire thing. He says, no longer do you have to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. No longer do you only have to be one of the special people with the special uniforms, priestly uniforms, and the special ritual practices, and the special sacrifice, and only once a year, and into this special place where the presence of God resides, he says, in your very home, you can create a holy of holies. The very presence of God can meet with you because Jesus Christ has come to open up the temple and to make a way so that all of us can come near to the presence of God through Jesus Christ. And so the author of Hebrews, who who, the entire book of Hebrews is about this argument, he says, look, he says, let us then, since a way has been made, since the, the, the a relationship with God that you can enjoy. The presence of God has been opened up. He says, let us draw near with a true heart, with an authentic self and in full assurance of faith because the way has been opened up and you can enjoy the presence of God. Now, let me just close by making three quick comments. So practically, what are we talking about here? Let me just make three practical suggestions. Number one, if you are going to engage in a regular rhythm of taking time to be with God, number one, establish a daily time and place. Might be the chair that's comfiest for you. It might be, uh, you know, in the closet, (laughs) shut away. It might be on the trail. It might be on the beach. But find a time and place. And be careful not to expect too much. You know, we're talking about a regular rhythm, a regular practice that over the long course of your life will begin to yield dividends. But it's only after a long obedience in the same direction. Second, try starting your time with silence. You know, we handed out those uh, uh, abide guides. Did anybody get it? How many of you guys got abide guides? Just... Show of hands. If you didn't get one, we will be handing more out in a couple of weeks because I ordered some more this week, so have no fear. But in that guide, we recommend that you start your, your, your time that you're taking to be with God not with more noise and not with more just immediate reading, but with silence. And I recommend taking five to 10 minutes and just shut everything out and just sit and you will begin to realize just how like, internally like busy you are, and how hard it is to keep your mind from wandering and distra- you know, like, and, and attend to what's going on inside of you. Why am I so distracted? What is more important for me to do than to be with God in this moment? And maybe have a verse that you're just contemplating, you're reflecting on during that moment. So start with silence and contemplation where you are still and you know that He is God. And then listen. Maybe God wants to say something to you and talk, pray. Bring your fears, your tears, your heartache, your pain, your questions, your longings, your gratitude, your praise. Reflect, read, read a scripture, read the Bible, read a book, and contemplate and think, but take time to be with God. And in that quiet place, in that secret place, we look for God to meet us there and to take us to new places He wants us to be. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now. And I confess God, that I am an overly busy person with such a short attention span. God, we confess it is so important to be with you and to enjoy you. And we just ask, God, that you would take us to new places than maybe we've been before in the past, that as we carve out space to be with you, to be near you, to hear from you, Father, that you would meet us in that place and that you would speak your love over us, that you would assure us that we are your sons and daughters and that in that place we might find fresh joy and peace, that we might be able to go out from that place into lives that honor you and that share proper attention and care for neighbors, and that are marked by deep adoration and love for you. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, amen.